The music is on, the disco ball has dropped, and it is time to get this party started. You are listening to episode 40 of Disco Trek, a Star Trek Discovery After Party podcast here on the Tricorder Transmissions Network. Tonight, I am your host, Jeff Hewlett, and unfortunately, uh, Heather Barker had a emergency and was not able to join the podcast, so I am flying solo uh, this evening, so I'm going to run through all of our housekeeping and stuff for all of you out there right now. So for those of you who are not familiar with the podcast, we are a community-based Star Trek discotheque of sorts, focusing on each episode of Star Trek Discovery as they air, along with some stuff that we do between seasons like character deep dives and panel discussions, things like that. Uh, Tonight, we are discussing Through the Valley of Shadows. With us to talk about the episode are two members of the Star Trek fan community. One has been on the show previously, and one is new, so I will go ahead and introduce Marika Spichala first. This is your first time being on the podcast. Welcome. Hi. Hi. How Thanks about... for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. You want to tell the folks out there a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and your Star Trek fandom? Um, well, I'm from Germany, um, but I'm currently in the States for research um, related to, I work in at an American Studies Department, and I really, I remember being like, four years old maybe and wanting to watch reruns of the original series and my mom kind of shutting that down because mm-hmm. she said it's it's not for children and you know she may have oh. been right and then when I was around 12 I got my own, own tv set in my room and at that point in time one of the German tv channels had like TNG DS9 and Voyager on back to back in the afternoons so that's how I dove back in um, and then Discovery kind of, I drifted away a little over the last couple of years and then Discovery reignited my fandom. And um, wow. I'm also currently co-editing a book on Discovery with a colleague uh, mm-hmm. from Munich. Her name is Sina Mittermeier. She, You had her on for the Queer Trek um, episode about Kalmets for that roundtable. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, it's been the last year has been a lot, um, a lot of Star Trek, <laughs> which makes me very happy. Yes, yes, that makes us all happy. And I'm I'm really glad to hear that Discovery uh, reignited your love for Trek. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm currently I'm rewatching all the old series from start to finish because I never saw all of them when they were on on TV. So now I'm kind of using Netflix to watch all of them in the order they're supposed to be watched. And that's, it's interesting how many things I pick up on now as an adult, that as mm. a kid just kind of went right over my head. So oh, for sure. Like, Same with me watching awesome. TOS back in the seventies and early eighties, you know, it's, but yeah. you know what, what a, what a great time to be a, a new or returning Trek fan that we have all these streaming yeah. services and we can just watch all of it at will, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, that's really awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and next up is a returning guest, Mr. Chris Bunyi. How are you, Chris? I'm fine, Jeff. Thanks for asking. And oh. thanks for having me back. Oh, our pleasure. Our pleasure. Um, you know what? For listeners who did not listen to the previous episode that you were on, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and your Trek fandom? Yes. Uh, I, I started with uh, Star Trek at the very first episode of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, it was just on. I was curious, and the rest is history. 
Uh, I've been a fan of her since, following all the Next Gen Era's, uh, Next Gen Era movies, uh, the Calvin Timeline, so on. And then uh, even with uh, no active, no, uh, no active shows at the time, I still kept at it. And now with Discovery, it's just a new show, and I'm very excited to be part of it. Yeah, you know, I, I love this. This is such a common thread um, among so many of the guests that we have on this show that how engrossing Trek can become. You know, when you when you first jump in and you're in the shallow end of the pool and you just start to go in deeper and deeper and deeper, next thing you know, uh, you're a Trekkie. So I think we all kind of have that that in common, and I think that speaks a lot about what Trek is about and what it means to all of us. So uh, awesome to hear that. And uh, oh, so we're going to hop into our discussion of this episode in, in just a minute, but uh, let's do a couple of quick housekeeping things first. So as I mentioned before, Disco Trek is community focused and evolved from our desire to give the fans uh, in our community a way to talk about Star Trek Discovery. So uh, to enter for your chance to join us on Disco Trek, uh, it's now open to the public. Uh, we're not just restricted to the unofficial Star Trek Las Vegas convention group on Facebook anymore. So you can either, if you're a member of that group, you can watch for our posts each week, or you can follow us at Disco underscore Trek on Twitter and look for our posts there. And there'll be a link for you to follow to a form on our website that you can fill out to enter in for the next week's episode. So entering in uh, will get you a random chance uh, against all the other people who, uh, who enter into the contest as well. There are only a couple of rules for this. So um, you can appear multiple times uh, on a season, but you just can't appear on two episodes in a row. So if you were just on an episode, you will not be able to be on this, the next episode after that. You will have to wait uh, for an additional week to get on. But so we do our drawings on Friday evenings uh, around 7 p.m. If you win or you don't win, you will get an email from us telling you uh, the details for that recording, which will occur on a Sunday evening most of the time. Uh, at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, please, you know, if you do win, respond to us within 24 hours of receiving the email so that we know and you're confirmed uh, that you will be on the show. If you are not able to attend, uh, we're going to need to roll the dice again and pick another guest. So if you don't get selected, uh, hold on to your tickets. You will still be able to get into the show if someone can't make it. And if you do not win and you want to be entered into the following week, uh, just respond to our email to us and let us know uh, that you want to be included in next week's drawing. You don't have to submit a whole nother form uh, all over again. So let's see what else. Oh, Patreon. So, um, you know, we do have a Patreon page. You can find it at patreon.com slash the tricorder transmissions or by visiting our website and clicking on the patreon link in the upper right hand corner uh, if you enjoy what we do here on disco trek or any of our other tricorder transmission shows of which there are many now and we have a new one coming uh, in the next couple of weeks so keep an eye out for faraday it's going to be our tabletop trek gaming podcast so um, that's going to be pretty awesome. I know the first episode's in the can and being edited as we speak. So becoming a patron will give you instant access to our unedited episodes right after we record them, uh, often with a bonus material before and after, uh, as well as early release episodes of some of our shows that uh, don't do unedited versions. And, um, you know, we have a lot of tiers that you can join at with different benefits. So take a look over at our Patreon page to see what all those benefits are for the different tiers. And um, check them out. And there's a lot of really cool stuff on there. We got video content coming out. Uh, we've got some 
some great um, benefits for uh, fans to be able to have input into our topics that we discuss on shows and even some guaranteed guest spots uh, for certain patrons at, at certain levels. So a lot of great stuff out there. Uh, we have no news on the Patreon front this week, uh, no new patrons, but thank you all for supporting us. We really, really appreciate all of your contributions to our network and, and we love you all and hope to see you all in the next Patreon hangout that we should be doing very, very soon. So keep an eye out for the announcement on that. So guys, are we ready to enter into our first segment uh, and drop the record? Yes, please. All right. So uh, in this drop segment, the needle. yeah, drop the I am needle. dropping it. We are dropping the record right now. So drop the record. We are doing our opening remarks and our overall reactions to the episode uh, in general. So, uh, Marika, why don't you go first? Um, so I, um, I'll preface this by saying that I think this was not my favorite episode this season, mm. but partly because um, Perpetual Infinity hit me really hard in a lot of like yeah. in in good ways, but also in very emotional ways. So I think that one for now is still my favorite. But I think I thought it was a really really well done episode um there's i have a few there's a few criticisms i have or things i wish they had done differently but um i definitely went from at the beginning of the season thinking oh well we'll see what they're going to do with pike um and not being quite sure what i thought about him being included to um absolutely loving how they've dealt with the character how they've fleshed him out i think anson mount's performances have been mm. fantastic and i thought that um this last episode was so well done in, in terms of um playing with this idea of fate and what do you do if you know what's waiting for you mm-hmm. um and i particularly like that he had a choice so that it wasn't yep. a predetermined thing but that he could choose to take the crystal or not and then if he hadn't he would have had a chance to maybe evade what we know will happen to him um so i thought that was all very well done um and in terms of i think it did a very good job of setting the scene for the last two episodes and um building the tension for those and building like picking up all of those uh, plot arcs that we need to resolve um in 13 and 14 yep oh god i totally agree with you about the pike angle on the <laughs> show and i have so many things that i want to talk about uh, uh surrounding this but i'm going to hold those off for a later segment and let chris talk about his overall reactions uh to this episode as for me i agree with marika uh stating that uh, this episode may not have been my favorite, but it was very well done. It's not necessarily because it was bad. It wasn't. It's because this episode, at least for me, it's all about moments. Throughout, It's, it's about selective moments throughout it, which enriched the entire experience of Discovery. Um, obviously, Pike um, meeting Laurel and Vox's son. Even the mess hall scene. Moments like that enrich the entire mm-hmm. show and Agreed. while this episode if you look at it as a whole is pretty okay pretty good it's the moments that sell it for me that's mm-hmm. why i wanted to go and discuss this episode tonight because of the fact that those moments really sold me on not only the season but 
characters. Not only not that I haven't solved them before, but they've solidified positions in certain cases in my like mm-hmm. my personal ranking. So you give them a bit more respect. You mm-hmm. you see them a bit more. There's stuff like that. But I like this episode not as a whole overall, even though it was very good. I liked it because of the moments it presented. Mm. Great points. And you know, that that's something that that I've been arguing about for a long time here on Disco Trek is that, you know, I, I always felt like I didn't get enough of a chance to get to know a lot of the characters on the ship and, you know, uh, have a sense of who they were and where they where they fell in the the in their duties and their order and their, you know, and I think that, you know, the the moments that you bring up, really do help to give those characters a little more depth. You know, I'm hoping that they continue to do this in Discovery. And like in season one, I you, you barely got to know anybody. Like the bridge crew seemed almost ancillary. Like they really were just there. And now we're starting to get little moments like the mess hall scene where we get to know them as people a little bit and get to, you know, know who they are and, and you know, connect with them on a different level uh, than we have previously. So I, I agree with you so much, Chris, uh, about the moments in this episode. And I didn't frame my head that way uh, when I was writing my own notes for this, but that that really puts a different spin on this episode for me. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you guys. Uh, I was kind of middle of the road on this one. There were some really great standout performances, of course, as there always are in every episode of Discovery. You know, I, as Marika said, I mean, Anson Mount totally knocks it out of the park uh, in the, in this episode. And I've been wondering for a while where they were going to go with the Captain Pike angle and um, whether or not they were going to change his fate. And, and we can talk about that a little bit more uh, in the later parts of the show. Um, there's there's obviously a lot to dig into there. But, you know, uh, interesting to see that he, you know, sees his fate in the future and, you know, knows what he's in for. Uh, and, and the delivery of that, those scenes with him reconciling that in his own head and, and you know, talking himself up uh, before he accepts the time crystal was really emotional. And I... I, I Loved his performance in that. Um, really great Saru moments. A couple of really great Saru moments that stood out for me that we'll we'll probably get into again later on. Um, you know his confidence in Burnham and you know the character that he's growing into. I've been fascinated by Saru since he went through the change and to see his confidence growing and uh, hopefully growing towards Captain Saru at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be fantastic. I, I love what they did with that. Uh, some amazing set building in this episode that the hangar deck was mind blowing. Uh, I was I, I'm constantly blown away by the sets uh, in Discovery. And, you know, an, another great score. The score for this episode was captivating. Uh, the high tension scenes, the score just really drew you in and, and really enhanced the, the show for me. But... You know, I've got a reputation over the last few weeks of being what we've called Mr. Negative, and I do have some really big nitpicks uh, with this episode, and uh, I think, you know, the things that we talked about in our overall reactions lead me to believe that we're going to touch on some of those things uh, in a little bit. So um, are we ready to move into our next segment, uh, Play a New Track? Does anybody have anything else to say overall about this episode, Marika? I think one thing... So one of my nitpicks, and I think I'll I'll just say that here and then maybe expand in one of the later segments, okay. is um, that I feel like one thing that, that annoyed me a little bit about this episode is 
that so while I loved the moments between Stamets and Reno and Culber and Reno that mm -hmm. we got, um, I also feel like they've been drawing out the resolution of that yes. subplot for too long. Like it's they've I understand that they want to that they wanted some time to resolve that, and I think that that's amazing that they took time to look at what's the after effects of dying and then being trapped in the network and then coming mm -hmm. back. But I think they've given us too little spread out over too many mm -hmm. episodes. So I wish, like, I kept waiting for Stamets and Culber to finally have a moment and talk, and it didn't happen again. So that was one of my um, kind of, that took some fun out of the episode for me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, I can't help but agree with that. <laughs> you know, I've been, you know, I, I was so happy when, when they brought Culber back and, and, you know, I realized that, you know, they wanted to keep, continue that arc, but yeah, I agree. It's, it's a little snippets across so many episodes and you're like, Oh my God, another one. Can we just resolve this already? I mean, obviously we're getting closer to a resolution, hopefully by the end of the season, but yeah, no, I, I definitely feel that. Chris, do you have any other overall thoughts about this episode before we move on? No, uh, in fact, I agree with both of you that the uh, Culber and Stamets plotline has been spread too thin over too many episodes. They need to resolve it. I understand why they probably wrote it in the sense that they could include Reno into the mix and state, hey, Culber, he's going away. But even that's like, you, you've got to talk. You, you got to talk to him. So you gotta, you, you've got to talk to him, do this, and, and just don't wait. So, yeah, I, I hope there's a, I know the solution's coming, but even that, I agree with both of you. It should have come already, or it should have been a bit more, it should have been earlier in the season, or even last episode, but I understand why. And if they wanted to include Reno, that was probably the case, but even that, I agree that the pacing on this has been very, very sparse over the last mm -hmm. few episodes. Like, all right, so it's hanging over heads. Is it going to happen? Are they going to get back to that type of thing? It has to happen soon. Yeah. So I agree. I, I agree about it. That's the only that's the only thing plot wise that seems to be, you know, it's it's kind of there. We know it's going to we know the shoe is going to drop somehow that 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 a conclusion is coming. But get to it, you know, snap to it already. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, that's I think that's a side effect of the, you know, this this serial nature of the show that, you know, they, they try to draw things out a lot. Um, you know, I've drawn the allegory between this and Walking Dead uh, several times where, you know, it seems like a, sto a storyline should have a relatively quick outcome, but they seem to want to kind of keep spacing it out and spacing it out and spacing it out. And, it, you know, it, some people may enjoy that and other people like me and I guess the two of you kind of get worn out <laughs> with that waiting for the resolution, you know, the constant teasing of a resolution and not delivering on it. So. Um, I just, my, my, my big hope is that we're not gonna, you know, get to the, the season one type of finale where everything is wrapped up super fast in the last episode. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, that, I, I feel like we haven't got really gotten many resolutions to anything so far in season two, and we've only got what a couple episodes left. So, uh, it looks like we're on the path to another really quick wrap up. Yeah. That definitely seems to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's hope the next episode brings at least some resolutions before the final one. So let's move on into the next section of the show, play a new track. And this is where we talk about what we learned about the Star Trek universe from this episode. So Chris, what did you learn about the Star Trek universe? 
Well, we know that Section 31 has at least 30 ships. <laughs> if, we yep. count the, if we count the ship that Michael and Spock went to, that's 31 ships. Seems appropriate. Yeah, true. true. It's a good number. Yeah. It's a good number. Well, they're really buying into the 31. I get it. I really do get it. It's just when you see all those ships, like 31, it's like, really? But then again, if you think about it, yeah, all right, fine. Yeah. But also, if you think about it, all those ships, think about all those previous or dare I say future appearances of Section 31 throughout Star Trek history. That's how they get there very, very quickly. It's not just one ship. Mm-hmm. It's several. So yeah. it's, it's, I mean, for all we know in the future on Deep Space Nine, there's a more advanced version of one of those ships that Sloan is on. Or in Enterprise, um, the director, um, yeah, we had one, they probably had a smaller fleet, like five or six, but they probably had something like that. So, mm-hmm. so they probably had a secret fleet all this time. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. And it would make sense for them to enlarge that fleet after the Klingon War. So it might be that the 31, sure. that that's a newer number um, because they step up Section 31 after the war, if I if, and with the whole control um, program and stuff. So that would, to me, that would make sense to yeah. see them expanding that part of the fleet. I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I didn't even make that connection, but um, <clears throat> yeah, it makes sense that they would, and they've made reference to their activities post Klingon War. So yeah, that that mm-hmm. totally makes sense. It makes sense because the fact that there's still nation building, even without the war happening. 31 would have expanded their fleet nevertheless in order to enhance their coverage of Federation space, mm-hmm. monitor threats along the border, stuff like that, or even uh, infiltrate uh, other organizations like uh, the Orion Syndicate mm-hmm. or stuff like, or, or, or forces like that that aren't necessarily governed by an actual government. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then they need to get in and out quick and they need ships. We've just seen that now. Yeah, yeah true. You know, funny, funny thought just occurred to me. Um, I, I, I am amazed that Section 31, knowing knowing what we're talking about now, did not try to co-opt the spore drive for their own use. You would think that would be really useful for them to be able to pretty much instantaneously get anywhere they want, anytime they want. Um, I'm surprised they didn't show up in Season 1 and <laughs> try to take the spore drive or at least copy it and, and get it onto their own ships. But then I guess they still have the problem of not being able to, like, they need a navigator. So they'd either yeah. have to capture a lot of tardigrades or genetically manipulate a lot of humans. True. I don't think uh, they'd have a problem with either one of those things. Uh, there is one other possibility. They probably have it as a black bag project somewhere off site that we don't know about. So oh, yeah, what it, it's completely possible that they do have their own spore drive. They just haven't shown it. Yeah. We know 31 is a covert organization True. and they develop a lot of weird True. projects that are off the books. If that's the case, mm-hmm. then they probably have a spore drive in the wings just in case. Yeah, good point. Right, yeah. what were you saying? Um, I was I was going to say, um, since they're still officially Starfleet at the point in time where we're right now and not kind of as, uh, like they're off the books, but not as off the books as they are in DS9. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking that um, all of those Starfleet regulations pertaining to DNA experiments and eugenics um, stuff would s- still apply to them. So that's why I was thinking, oh, how would they use it? How would they solve the navigator problem? But um, then again, they might just have it somewhere in a 
in a hangar um, in case they need it and just, I don't know, have someone volunteer to get that tardigrade DNA or just use tardigrades because, yeah, mm. they might just do that. True. That's cool. Well, if they had it in a in a in a a bay somewhere or something, I'm surprised that control didn't immediately use it when it seized control of of the ships. Right. So interesting. We'll have to see what happens. Uh, of course, in the future, there's always a lot of mysteries <laughs> around discovery. Uh, Chris, do you have anything else that you learned? We do know that one of Michael's old crewmates from the Shenzhou was mm -hmm. recruited at the Thirty One. Mm -hmm. um, also, uh, we know that time flows differently on Borath. True. Also, we know that Borath is a monster. We just didn't know how important it was. In the past, we've been there. War's been there. We've heard it mentioned. But even that now, they solidify it as basically like going to Jerusalem or the Vatican. It's mm -hmm. holy ground to them. But it's not just holy ground. It's, it's a repository for these crystals. It's something that is not only sacred but potentially dangerous uh yeah yeah that's something that stood out to me that is in my notes to read for this section uh, my my sensors went off immediately uh when when it was said that this planet contains these time crystals and these klingons were the guardians of these time crystals and i'm, I'm thinking to myself immediately doesn't this planet now need a general order like talos 4 has because I mean, this seems really dangerous to leave these things in the hands of some 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 Klingon monks, and uh, I would think they would need some kind of twenty four seven security perimeter. I mean, any hostile alien that knows that those crystals are there, <laughs> you're going to have to fight them off because that's like the ultimate weapon. Any anybody and everybody is going to want those crystals. So this this planet seems really dangerous to me. Mariah, could you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I found it interesting that. Laurel said that the Klingons themselves had stopped experimenting with the time crystals and were mm. kind of, as you said, had appointed themselves the guardians of, mm -hmm. of those crystals. Um, and I assume that they have some sort of protection in place because they, the discovery only goes there after Tyler reaches out to Laurel and arranges passage. So um, I assume the Klingons are guarding it. But yeah, I wonder... I, I guess that whole the whole mission the ship is on right now will be under the highest security clearance possible to make sure yeah. um, a lot of that information never gets out once they've defeated control. Um, that's yeah. a whole other headache. And but yeah, no, I no one tell Harry Mud uh, about right? Boris or anyone else <laughs> who might want to use those crystals. We need to hope against hope that <laughs> control doesn't have any access to Discovery's computers Ooh. or else it will know that the time crystals are there and that would not be a good thing. I'm, but, you know, we know that Boris still exists in DS9 and yes. other shows, so, so um, that's reassuring. Sure, yes. We can lean on future <laughs> Trek shows for comfort on this <laughs> one. Uh, Chris, any more thoughts on what you learned about Star Trek Universe? Well, the thing is that Going back to Borath, it's it's probably uh, from what I understand, um, Worf was there for the monastery part. He would not even would have uh, people like that that go to the monastery are probably not even aware of the time crystal repository. True. So it w it would have probably been in some secret area, locked locked or even cloaked away. They have the cloaking technology, so might mm -hmm. as well use it planet side. So 
they probably do have an have a standing order stating no crystal will be used for these purposes and all as of in the Klingon Empire, and probably is a um, standing order or agreement or gentlemen's agreement or interplanetary unofficial interplanetary agreement with all the other powers in in the galaxy, including the Federation, to not usurp these crystals for your own purposes. Like this is dangerous. Even the Klingons stopped it. Even though that we've seen in the future certain Klingons use time technology and they probably found ways to get the supply for themselves secretly. But mm. as a whole, even the Klingon state, this is dangerous. No one should have this type of power. We will guard it, but we won't use it or exploit it or even research it. Mm. This is over. So no one must know this forward, at least to the general public. If anyone wants to go, we'll maintain the monastery. But if anyone knows about this, we will deny it, we will hide it, and we will not mention it. Hmm. Yeah, well, we have to hope it remains uh, a secret and uh, no, nobody's loose lips uh, <laughs> bring uh, hostile alien forces to this planet. But uh, So, Marika, what did you learn about the Star Trek universe from this episode? Um, I, I was thinking one additional thing we learn is that there's an alien species called the Soyusians. Hmm. Um, because Reno's wife, who is is mentioned mm -hmm. when she talks to Dr. Culver, is a Soyuzian. We don't learn anything more about them, but they're out there. Um, and I'm interested to see if they'll bring them in at some point in the future. I know why they didn't tell us more about her in that scene because it would have it would have taken too much time. Um, but I my brain always instantly goes, oh, so who who are these? Uh, so Yusians would like where where are they from? What are their what's their culture like uh, and and things like that? So I hope that um, they'll bring some in in season three in some way. Yeah, well, I mean that's one thing Discovery has done quite a bit of uh, in the past is you know give us a little inkling of something and then expound on it later. Uh, right. So I have uh, I have a lot of optimism that we will see Reno, uh, aka take Nataro's character back uh, once again, and we can possibly explore her backstory and her wife's backstory so and discovery is is very very good at that so i have every confidence uh that that's going to happen so uh, anything else that you learned i also find it interesting that we learn that pike knows about his fate or that mm -hmm. we watch him learn about what will happen to him um after in perpetual infinity you we have dr burnham say i know what um yep I know your future and you won't like it or something like that. Mm -hmm. So so that they now actually went there and show us Pike learning what will happen. Um, I think that was, I found that very interesting and it raises interesting questions about fate. Yes, in it does. The universe. And I have a bunch of other notes for the spin it again section on that. Uh, so that I find very interesting. Um, but also it fits Pike, as we have come to know him, I, I thought that he learns about this accident and what he will do, but that given the choice, he doesn't turn away and he doesn't say, oh, no, actually, I want, I don't want that to happen to me. So I thought that worked really well, but also, um, as I said, raises a lot of questions. He, oh my god it does that's on my list of things to talk about and i had some copious notes and things that were rambling around in my head uh after that sequence uh happened but i i agree with you that that was very profound and and spoke a lot about his character and i like that they 
they stuck with that uh, the, the character that they've established with Pike and I I'm very I was very curious all season as to what they were going to do uh with Pike and his you know the future that we all know about mm-hmm. uh that he supposedly didn't know about but now we know that he knows about it um I, I don't want to you know flip your cards for uh spin it again but uh, this was one of the things that really stuck out to me uh, in this episode, and I guess we we can get into it uh, in, under spin it again. But this was one of my um, one of my play new tracks was that I, I don't know if the word retcon necessarily fits this because we didn't really it didn't really change anything about uh, you know Pike's eventual outcome. We didn't know much about his backstory uh, prior to this, but. Um, it 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 was interesting to me that you know they portrayed this in the way that they did uh and it gave it a much more dramatic impact that you know he was able to see his future self mm-hmm. um and and have to reconcile that in his mind and you know realize you know that you know who he is is who he wants to be and you know he chose to accept the time crystal uh, regardless of what his future is going to be. And we can discuss all of the other things that that brings out, um, you know, in the next segment. But um, that was something that was on my list for play a new track. Um, you have anything else, Marika, before we move on? Um, I think that's it from my side. Okay. So, I mean, one other thing that I don't have a lot of notes about, it was just a random thought, uh, something that, that I learned from this episode that I'm I'm really not quite sure what to do with at this point is that Michael Burnham is the random element that control can't project the outcomes around, which was interesting to me because I really don't understand why that is. Obviously, Dr. Burnham is no longer able to time travel, but I'm sure we're going to see the resolution to that uh, in the next episode where they send the time crystal forward and she's able to get the suit working again or whatnot. But um, I I wasn't, it it seemed like something that they were, you know, they they stated very emphatically uh, during that discussion with, with Burnham and Spock, but it didn't seem to have much context around it. Um, So I wasn't sure what your guys' thoughts would be on that. Do you have any thoughts about why Michael, is so significant to control, Chris? Uh, not at this time. I think it's most likely because of the fact that Dr. Burnham is the link to it. And also Michael has, is, is, I mean, I think she's, it's possibly her mere presence or maybe she might be the eventual cause of certain things. I don't want to state anything else. It's just that uh, I think she's more key than she realizes. We just don't know it yet. So I, I know this, it's, I mean, obviously it's her show, but with respect to this season's arc and with respect to the remaining bursts and Dr. Burnham's unawareness of the origin of those, maybe Michael might eventually know what happens. Or maybe she could, maybe she's the one that creates it. We don't know. So I'm stating that Michael might be a bit more important than we realize with respect to the final two episodes in this eventual story arc. We just haven't seen that yet. We know that control considers her a threat, but why? We don't know. But even she doesn't know. But I think she is a bit more important in these last two episodes. Interesting points. Uh, Marika, any thoughts on that? I've been thinking just now that Burnham might be the random element because she's survived several instances where she should have died. So she 
survives as a kid she survives the klingon attack on her home she survives mm-hmm. that bombing on the vulcan learning center because sarek does something uh with his what's it called katra yep um then she yes katra then her mother saves her when she tries to run away by appearing to spock for the first time she you know she survives a couple other things in the in season one and season two so i'm wondering if if that is somehow connected that she should have died at an earlier point but she didn't so now she's kind of uh, some sort of wild card trickster um, oh yeah it could be a final destination thing even though she's not a classical trickster uh in that sense um but you know i i wonder if it's if it's maybe something like that but i'm not i don't know how they would reconcile that with other kind of star trek trekian ideas about fate and in, individual choice and uh, and things like that so i might i'm probably wildly off with that one um, <laughs> well who knows discovery goes in strange directions so you could be dead on <laughs> with some of that stuff we, we absolutely will... it's not out of the realm of possibility nothing yeah, is so, so some of the some of these incidents have been to save michael so you might be exactly right someone or something is steering michael towards the situation mm-hmm. so for all we know i mean she's the random element for all we know she's the key to this yeah she's not just some random element she could be far more important as i said before she could be the key to solve all this she could be and we did get a, a hint that there may be another time traveling entity in this episode that was creating the signals True. so maybe there's another mm-hmm. big reveal coming uh, that will shed some more light on Michael's importance uh, to the overall discovery arc. So um, I guess we'll have to wait in suspense uh, for that to happen. But uh, are you guys ready to move into our final segment, spin it again? Sure. I definitely am. All yep. right. So this is our final segment of Disco Trek. And this is about the moments that stood out to us in this episode of Star Trek Discovery. So Marika, why don't you kick us off? What moments stood out to you? in this episode of Discovery. So definitely, and I think that's the one that stood out most to everyone, the moment where Pike um, touches the crystal and then sees the um, the accident and what that accident eventually does to him. And it stood out for, to me, for several reasons. Uh, on the one hand, because I thought it was an interesting connection to the title, The Valley of the Shadows, um, and the, you know, if you know that Bible quote, uh, though I've walked through the valley of the shadows of death, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I thought that was an interesting way of, mm. of working the titles. In, um, and I think they've done, they do that really well um, across both seasons. But I think here they did it exceptionally well because it also applies to several other characters. But so I thought that was really nicely done. Um, and I really loved once he comes out of that vision when he sits there and he says and and he's told by Tanovic you can still choose to walk away and not suffer this fate and then he says uh, to himself you're a Starfleet captain you believe in service sacrifice compassion and love and then um, he decides to not throw everything about himself away um, by running from this fate and to take the crystal so I thought um, that was so well acted, um, as we as we've said before, um, and it 
I, I also thought it was a really interesting contrast to season one and Captain Lorca and Pike from his very first appearance has been deliberately, I think, constructed as the anti-Lorca and kind of the archetypical Starfleet captain, like the captain of all captains, if you will. So I found it very interesting that with Lorca, we had someone who was so convinced that he had some sort of special destiny and who mm -hmm. was very ready to do everything and sacrifice everyone to get to that destiny. And with Pike, we get the counterpoint. We get someone who sees what will happen to him, but who says, I can't betray my own values and who I am as a person um, just to save my own skin. And, you know, Lorca would totally not have taken that crystal. He would have hightailed it out of Boreth <laughs> so quickly. Um, so that was, I, I found that very interesting. And I, I really like all of these kind of parallels and echoes and mirror images um, that they've been working into season two. So that that's one thing I've been thinking a lot about also in terms of fate and what these two different approaches to fate and destiny tell us about the Star Trek universe or about how the Discovery writers think about fate. Um, and sometimes I'm not sure they themselves have quite decided whether they think fate is set in stone or not, or what the ultimate answer there is, but I like that they're at least playing with it. And I like, um, as I said before, I like that Pike got a choice. Um, so, because that also ties it back to when in one of the earlier episodes he says, we're always in a fight for the future. So I think all of that uh, worked really, really well, in addition to kind of the emotional impact of that scene, of seeing him confront that and struggle with it and then choose the right thing, if you will, or what we would say the right thing is. Uh, and I think it's it's brave to know, oh, there's this accident, like it's, we, we knew up to this new episode, oh, there's this accident and he's very brave and saves all of these cadets and suffers these injuries. But I think knowing that he knows that will come and choosing that fate for himself and then actually going onto that ship and doing all of that, I think, ups the bravery even more. Like, he, he's even braver than we thought he was, I think. Yeah. No, I have to agree with that. I, you know, I, I, this is a topic that's come up uh, a couple times during season two uh, on Disco Trek, and that the uh, the comparison between Lorca uh, versus Pike and mm -hmm. the polar opposite nature of the two captains, and um, you know, feeling that it was a almost a deliberate choice to um, you know give us this kind of breath of fresh Captain air <laughs> with Captain Pike, right and. Um, I, I found it very refreshing. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. And, I, and it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, the difference between, you know, our season one captain and our season two captain and extrapolating from that, what's our mm -hmm. season three captain going to look like? Um, it's, it's a kind of a heavy thing to think about, but I think it illustrates the differences between people. And, you know, I, I think we can all kind of apply this philosophy and thought process to our own lives and people that we know and the differences between them and their goals and, and what they would do to get to them and the sacrifices that they would choose to make. And I'd like to think that all of us are more like Captain Pike and what we would choose in that situation than we are uh, like, like Lorca. Chris, do you have any thoughts 
on the the Pike versus Lorca or or Pike's uh, sacrifice and decisions and bravery in this episode? Oh, I have plenty. Uh, <laughs> uh, the thing is that when I saw the moment, when I saw uh, when when I saw the initial vision, I was thinking, "Oh my God!" Is exactly what Mendez described in the Menagerie. Hmm. It's, I mean, the you see the plates rupture, you see everyone get. He says basically, "Get out." So it's basically what Mendez stated in the Menagerie, in which he said he got all those cadets that were still alive out, and that's true. He wasn't dragging them or anything else, but he got them out at it, at uh, the sacrifice of his own life. You see the initial burns, but what really stood out to me was the subsequent vision in the hall. You hear the chair, mm-hmm. and it's sort of creeping, mm-hmm. and you know what's going to happen. That you was know well that done. shoe is going to drop. And mm-hmm. then when you see him actually in the chair, and dare I say, the, the, uh, their redesign of the chair, it actually looks better than the original in some ways because it's, it's a bit more self-contained. But also, you see that his skin, it's, it's falling off. It's, it's, it's worse than what we saw in the original series. It was mm-hmm. far worse. It, it, look, it looks like he's in hell. It's not just some burns that which yep. you just can't do. It, it looks bad. It really looks bad. And it sold the horror of the moment and the revelation that he actually knows this is going to happen to him within seven to eight years. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is, that's just, the, I mean, the sheer horror of it. To us, to have him actually see himself disfigured yep. with a working brain, but with a body that's betraying him inundated with Delta radiation, a battery-driven heart, uh, only able to move by um, move the chair in whatever direction in most cases. And that, even though that it's a, it's a really sad fate that he sees, he doesn't see past it. But even that, he's, he sees enough. He doesn't know all the circumstances. All he knows is that he gets the cadets out and it's an accident. It's, um, it's an inspection tour. So he, he's wearing uh, a tire that looks like it's flag officer material, but it's not necessarily admiral material. You see the five, um, the five insignia on his epaulets, which means it's not a regular admiral, but it's not. It's higher than a captain, obviously. So it, they've aligned it with original series uh, uh, continuity, which states that he is a fleet captain after this time. So he is wearing the uniform of a fleet captain. Notice the insignia, which is very similar to the Admiralty, but it is specific to him. So, But when you see the moment and you see him kneeling down and realizing, oh my God, this is what is going to befall me, and just recoil in horror, that is before he makes the decision. And he's like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then when Tanavik says, you can still walk away from this fate. But if you choose to take the crystal, your fate will be sealed. And we could talk about fate all day. We could talk about now that he knows, can you evade it? No, because the fact that he knows that once he does that, he's walking towards that path. He doesn't know when it's going to happen. We know, but he doesn't. All we know is that if he takes that crystal, if he says, give it to me, which he does, he's sealing his own fate, at least at that point. He doesn't know about why... He doesn't know about what Spock's going to do later on. He doesn't know about uh, him being taken on the Enterprise and Kirk trying uh, the, the court martial and all that stuff. He doesn't know about any of it. But 
he clutches his delta on his discovery uniform and reaffirms every belief that he's had and also weighs the potential risk of losing all sentient life in the universe and it's not just about living up to starfleet's uh, ideals or principles it's about the willingness to sacrifice yourself so that so many others will live and when he says that when he says i will not be i i, I won't be i won't turn away because of a fate that might befall me that i didn't envision before and he says give it to me and at that point he earned my profound respect as a character because of the fact that before this season i had known him and i liked him and i respect him that much beforehand because of the fact that if he could be named if he's named after the medal of honor in the next gen ds9 era and so many others i mentioned before we've heard name drops all throughout the franchise history this guy must be really good with this episode in that moment when tanavik says i honor you captain we honor him as well because of the fact that he, we know fully well that he chose this fate and he fully knows that he's headed towards that chair hmm. i have this in my notes too so let's just stay on this topic uh for a minute because this was one of the things about this episode that i had a little bit of, of difficulty with not necessarily um all the things that you just referenced uh chris but um, I felt it was a little bit nebulous as to why taking the time crystal solidifies your future. But I guess, you know, Star Trek is Star Trek and, you know, we have to buy into it. But in my mind, yeah, that binds him to his future actions and the repercussions of those actions and the outcomes of those actions. But it, it didn't say anything about somebody else changing things. Like, I mean, it just seemed to me like he could be like, well... Here's what the future is going to be. Discharge me so that I'm never on any training missions. I just it, it just didn't feel as resolute to me. Like there seems to be other possibilities. Like not everything was wrapped up. It seemed to be just about his own actions and his own fate. But it it, it seems to me like someone, even if he was there, if he told all the cadets what was going to happen, they could just cancel the training mission and everything would be cool. I, I don't. I'm really not sure. It, it was very um, nebulous as to why exactly that would seal uh, his fate. Very dramatic and and uh, impactful. Um, great character moments came out of it, but uh, it just kind of felt like, okay, I guess I just have to accept this, even though there's so many holes in it and, and variables that aren't necessarily taken into account. Um, you know, Marika, did you have any any opinions on that? I have to say that I was wondering how right Tanavik was about saying, if you take the crystal, that will seal your fate. Um, because that goes into the, into that sort of pre-destination kind of direction that I'm not sure Star Trek necessarily wants to go into. Um, but I guess they had to have something in there because we all yeah. know that will happen to Pike. And I, um, it looks like they don't they're not going to change that and i i think that's good but i think there's the possibility that maybe the klingons think taking a crystal will seal your fate but that it's not necessarily true or as you said someone else might still change things we know that dr burnham has 
changed the future with the people on Terra Elysium. So that's a possibility. I guess it might be some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy type. So now that he's seen that will happen, maybe he, he'll think it has to happen. So he he won't even try to change it. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I agree that um, they didn't really explain why taking the crystal leads to things happening in the way that he saw it. Um, so in my mind, there's maybe possibilities for that not applying, but we we also know that that is what will happen to him. So it's a bit of a catch-22, maybe, if you will. It is. But and you know what it just occurred to me? This thought just popped into my head. You know, the, 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 the Klingons are closely guarding these time crystals, but we found out in previous episodes that there are time crystals on the black market. Where are they coming from? Is there someone in the monastery who's leaking time crystals? Um, who knows? Uh, so, you know, that leads me into another point, but I want to let you guys uh, get your points out first before I launch into any of mine. So, Marika, do you have any other things that you uh, think that stood out to you in this episode? As I said, I really liked all of the scenes that Reno was involved in. Um, partly because I just really like Tignotaro and I really like what they've done with Reno. Um, and I hope they keep her around for season three. Um, so I like the the mess hall scene because as um, as I think you, Jeff, said earlier, it shows us the characters a bit more. It gives mm-hmm. us a bit more to chew on for the bridge crew. We get them, um, we see them playing that auto-antonym game we also see her and Stamets, Reno and Stamets interact a little more. And then we see her talking to Culber. And I found that I, I really enjoyed the way they kind of bantered back and forth um, and the glimpse at backstory for both of those characters that we got when they talked about wedding planning and um, when Re- Reno talked about her wife. So I think that all worked really, really well, despite my the reservations I mentioned earlier about them stretching out that particular subplot for yeah. too long. But I think it gave us a really good additional look at her character because she sees Stamets kind of struggling with that the status of that relationship. Um, and then she goes and puts on her wedding ring uh, because I, I went back and looked at the mess hall scene and she's not wearing it in that scene either because she's usually not wearing it or be, for work reasons, so for safety reasons or just for privacy reasons, who knows. Uh, but then she does go to the, the to sick bay and she wears it. So in my mind, she very deliberate. I mean, obviously she deliberately goes there because I'm pretty sure she usually wouldn't go to sick bay for a hangnail. <laughs> so I loved how I love deliberate, the, yeah. Yeah, I love the character work they did with that. And I've been waiting for her and Culver to interact ever since they announced her. I, I had a whole theory about the Hiawatha maybe being Culver's earlier posting during mm. after the first episode aired. I it looks like that won't come to fruition, but I really um I really enjoyed that and I thought both of those scenes were good kind of um, mostly funny. But character intro- building. Character building, right. yeah. Character building, but also kind of lighter moments um, mm-hmm. in a season that has been really relentless. Yeah. Where emotions are concerned. So I thought that 
um, worked really well for me. Yeah, I agree that I do like the fact that they inject some lighter moments mm -hmm. into these otherwise heavy episodes, whether it's emotional heaviness or uh, drama heaviness in other mm -hmm. ways. Yeah, it's, it's it's nice to have those little short breaks. Uh, and I thought those uh, the, the the moments between uh, Reno and and Culber were some nice character building moments, as well as giving a little bit of comic relief and mm -hmm. some some lighter elements uh, to the story. So, uh, Chris, uh, what moments stood out to you in this episode? Uh, but uh, I uh, actually those I like the Reno moments too. The thing is that also when Reno goes in, we see a very veiled secondary reference back to the uh, back to the menagerie because yeah. she goes in for a hangnail mm -hmm. and remember McCoy said oh when he gets called back to the Enterprise in the menagerie part one it's like probably someone discovered a hangnail so yep. if yeah. anyone <laughs> picked that up it's like yeah it's, they, they were really channeling that up that episode when they wrote this episode so for obvious reasons but not for that one it's like someone just threw that in just for fun and you know what it was fun it was a, it was a nice way to call go back to the culprit one ball so just states like you you gotta talk to him that type of thing but even that i like the moment in the in the missile because it's not just the internet the the the, um, the distance between culber and stamets i like just the banter between the crew because we don't see it we don't see the crew outside of the bridge that often we don't see them in a social setting at least not as not as much this season as was last time. i mean we had the party last season um we've seen some footage from arium earlier in the season and now we see the mess hall scene which they're basically just having lunch and talking and chewing the breeze and i like more of those episodes it's it's, it's like um it's um it's like any other um that's all uh scene from like voyager or um or uh or ten forward scene for next gen, or it's just just general being, mm -hmm. you know, just yeah. general being in the moment, where, like just enjoying the company of your of mm -hmm. your crewmates. And those moments, I think, have been somewhat lost as of late. But you know, they're getting back to it. But we want more. It's it's not that we don't like Michael or Saru or Stamets or Pike or anyone else. We just want to know more of the other characters mm -hmm. because we want to know more about Detmer and everyone else and. We, we knew about Arya obviously before what happened to her, but we just want to know more about these characters. And if I it's agree. just moments like that, which we show them in the mess hall or at a party, or even just talking down, like running down uh, a hallway, not like the marathon scene earlier uh, this year with, uh, with, with, with Tilly, mm -hmm. I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. We yeah. need more character moments. Just, just life on the ship. I just wanted to see a little bit more of that. Not a great deal, but interjected a little bit more here and there. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. It humanizes the characters. It makes them more relatable. Um, that's exactly. always a good thing in my mind. Uh, Marika, what, what were you saying? And I, I will also say uh, I found it interesting that it's, again, to me, kind of a parallel to season one where we have Stamets sitting in the mess hall alone drinking tea and then Tilly um kind of butting in and and asking him about his side effects um mm -hmm. and so and here we kind of get again a, an echo of that scene with with reno kind of getting all up in his business and and trying <laughs> to figure out why he uh looks so sad um but at the same time he's sitting at a table with all of these other people so it's an interesting visually at least an interesting 
um, nod to how much more integrated he has become with mm-hmm. the rest of the crew. Um, so I thought that also worked really well. Um, yeah, I agree. As a character um, development bit. I agree. I, I agree with both of you. I, I am looking forward to seeing more of these, uh, you know, short character building, humanizing sequences with these crew members who've been, I hate to use the word neglected, but I feel like we haven't gotten enough of them. So, you know, th- this kind of stuff to me is the essence of Star Trek. And, and what I love about Star Trek is the exploration, uh, you know, of these characters. And, and all of the previous shows have done that. Um, to a greater extent so far than Discovery has. And hopefully we're going to get more of that stuff. We're going to get to more of that stuff. Um, you know, I, I, it seems like they've been trying uh, to do that a lot more in season two than they did in season one. So I'm looking at that as a, a net positive. Uh, Chris, any other moments that stood out to you? Um, just a bit more of the, uh, of the uh, bit more of the uh, Spock Burnham dynamic. They're, they're, uh, they're not above snarking each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as was the case, uh, and also it's good that Spock and Burnham are are how to say it tolerant enough, and I wouldn't say close enough, but at least dependent enough so that way they'll have each other's back at least for the time being. Mm-hmm. So that's good. But uh, if I were to go back to the crew scenes, like if they are neglected, give them a short trek, give them fifteen mm-hmm. minutes, just just them. It's like everyone yeah. else off. Just, just give them fifteen minutes, even if it's just talking or mm-hmm. a small problem or changing a conduit or something. Just, just give them fifteen minutes and just have them talk. Yeah, that's what I would. I would. I would watch for that. Yeah. So, what are our short treks going to be for season two? Yeah, that's exactly. a great point. Yeah. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that if you want, if you suggest to the people, but if, such as to the fire ups, but if anyone on the show, if it's writing staff or cast or whatever is listening to this we're telling you this right now give the rest of the bridge crew mm-hmm. a short trek or at least a bit more in the season just just to know them not just area like the episode area just just give us like an extra short trek in which we're just seeing them in the moment during the day or at lunch or something and something comes up and they need to solve it mm-hmm. so i I'd, I'd, I'd love Mm-hmm. A short trek like that. As would I. Yes, definitely. As would I. Um, all right. Well, a couple quick things for me uh, before we we wrap the show up. Um, this first one, forgive me, you guys. Uh, this is very self-serving. Finally, uh, this is something that I kind of went on a little bit of a rant about on the last episode of Disco Trek. Finally, someone acknowledges that blowing up the ship is the right thing to do. <laughs> I thought that in the last episode, I'm like, that is the most obvious solution to this problem. Uh, since we can't delete the data and section 31 and and uh, control is going to be relentless until it gets the data. The only real logical thing to do right now is, well, unfortunately, uh, we're, we're going to have to blow up the ship since we can't do anything else with this data. So I was uh, oddly felt vindicated when Michael... <laughs> brought that up in this episode because when I mean, we've seen other Starfleet vessels self-destructed in the past so it didn't seem like a stretch to me that that could be something uh that was a, a suggestion to this to this problem uh being that it seemed like a really obvious solution to it but um uh, now this the, the next thing that that I I had written down here and and this is Something that I don't think a lot of people out there are going to agree with, but this was something that came up to me while I was watching this episode. And 
you know, I guess if if anybody out there listens to some of the other tricorder shows uh, that that I I am a part of, uh, you know that I'm a a, a big proponent of rewriting <laughs> Star Trek. Um, so I I would have really really have preferred that the the time crystals were under the care of some new benevolent alien race uh, aside from the Klingons. I it just it seems really sketchy to me that you know not even a single house of the Klingon Empire would have seized the opportunity to take those crystals and change the outcome of the Klingon war. I mean, this is just, you know, knowing the Klingons, knowing their, you know, warlike tendencies, it just seems really strange to me that you know, these things would be under the care of the Klingons. And, you know, it's, like I said before, it's like the ultimate weapon. And it, it just seems to me that someone in the Klingon Empire would have said, hey, listen, you know, we've got this stuff in our domain. Why are we not using it to change the outcome of this war that we're obviously not happy with? Um, you know, obviously we saw earlier in the season, you know, the Klingons aren't really happy with the way things went down in that war. So I, I would have rather seen something like the guardian of forever or, you know, some other benevolent or altruistic uh, race that was guarding these things. I, I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm alone in that. What, what, what do you guys think, Marika? What, what are your thoughts on that? Mm, I hadn't, to be honest, I hadn't really thought about it like that yet. Um, but I, I think you have a point. It is interesting that no one, uh, none of the other houses have tried to get up at those crystals. And I wonder, um, and that I guess that ties back to the earlier discussion about how well-known their existence is. Because if only mm. the chancellor and I, we don't even know if all of the monks in the monastery know that the crystals are there. Um, mm. so that, that might only be a couple. And then the chancellor, I guess, has to know, but she doesn't have, Laurel doesn't have any say on Boreth or in mm -hmm. that monastery. Um, so I think you can kind of sort of explain why that has not happened. But yeah, that's a very good point to raise. Um, and it would have been interesting to see a different alien species. Then again, it would have been, it would have maybe crowded the episode mm, a little to, to have to introduce a, a whole um, new yeah. species. And I really really liked that Laurel and Tyler got um, had a moment to talk and to kind of resolve some of their lingering issues and mm -hmm. that they got to hear a little bit about their son. So I, um, I think that sold me on the time crystals being on, on Boris and, and, you know, I, Kenneth Mitchell usually does, um, does such a good job with all of these different Klingons. Um, and I, I had to laugh a little because I joked to friends of mine after Perpetual Infinity that maybe Kenneth Mitchell will come back and play the son of folk and Laurel. <laughs> so, um, maybe I need to make more stupid jokes about Discovery and then <laughs> come true. Uh, so, you know, but it, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I wonder if we will see repercussions down the line if they bring the Klingons back in season three, um, if that will become a problem for Laurel. Yeah, it's definitely wide, wide open. And, you know, we're getting a little bit tight on time, so I'll, I'll rush through my final, uh, my final thing here. And, and this is something that hasn't come up in the episode yet, but was a, a hot topic on the previous disco track, man, the Borg vibe in this mm -hmm. episode was so heavy. 
uh, you know, we've got some, uh, you know, uh, Gant's voice changing uh, into a more robotic Borg-like tone. That really stood out. Uh, you know, it, trying to inject nanoprobes into to Burnham's eye with a needle. Uh, the fact that nanoprobes can live outside of a body is a little bit new, but I thought mm-hmm. that was interesting. Uh, the fact that he's not quite impervious to phaser fire, but almost is. It seems like it's an evolving thing. I mean, it really, really feels like we're working towards a Borg origin story here. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on this kind of Borg-like behavior? I think, uh, obviously, it's quite alarming. The thing is that uh, we know control is incredibly adaptive, highly intelligent, and this is just another level to it. So when we see um, when we see the nanopro, nanobots or nanopros, whatever, uh, escape the body and actually manifest and go after Michael in the literal sense, it's scary. Um, as an aside, Michael dual-wielding phasers, which is rare in Star Trek. Yeah, it is. Um, mm-hmm. Me being a John Woo fan, having seen some of his work, that's a nice little callback to it and also just, just the other uh, gunfights that I like with that respect. So it's good to see that that skill is not lost, but going back to the probes, it just shows the tenacity of control. Control wants this data. It does. And they will usurp, it will usurp anything or anyone mm-hmm. in order to get it. Even if it means, you know, neutralizing certain threats or taking over certain bodies. Mm-hmm. We've seen that. We've seen that multiple times. Well, it'll happen again. And um, it just shows that 31, I mean, control and 31 or control controlling 31, dare I say, will go after it uh, by any means necessary. And mm-hmm. it's now not just 31, it's just control. And that's dangerous. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. Uh, Marika, any thoughts on the Borg possible origins? I am still hoping that they're not going for a Borg origin mm. story because... I don't know if anyone really needs that. And there's other, not every kind of cyborg slash AI story has to be tied to the Borg. Mm -hmm. Um, As terrific an adversary as they have been. So I'm hoping that all of that, um, all of those kind of things we've seen in the past few episodes are a colossal red herring and they'll do something else with control. God, I I hope so. So. I hope so, too. I, I lamented over this in the last episode, and I uh, would also like to keep the Borg's backstory a mystery. I think it's better that way. But, um, all right, so before we close up the show, uh, let's go around the table and let everyone out there uh, in listener land know where they can locate us if they want to talk more Trek with us. Chris, where can people find you online? If they wanted to find me, uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, both at C-B-U-N-Y-E, just my first initial and then my last name, C-B-U-N-Y-E at, at Twitter and on Instagram. Awesome. Awesome. Marika, where can people find you online? Uh, I am on Twitter and my handle on Twitter is S-P-Y-C-H-A-L-A and then capital M. So my last name and an M. Okay. So that the easiest way to find me. All right. And I am Warp Factor Jeff on Twitter. If you want to reach out to me, the show is Disco underscore Trek. So feel free to reach out to all of us if you want to talk more Trek or expound on any of the things we've talked about 
on this episode. We would love to hear from you and engage with you. So uh, that wraps up episode number 40. Amazing. 40 episodes already of Disco Trek. And we will be back again next week to discuss the next episode of Star Trek Discovery. Thank you, as always, for listening to the show. And another shout out to our wonderful Patreon supporters. We love you all. Thank you so much for supporting the show and the network. Uh, We couldn't do what we do without you. So until next week, live long and prosper. <laughs>